Coming up next, Sanity at the Movies. Reviews. Jaws. <laughs> Just kidding. We're doing close and for some reason that I don't really understand. It's a really great Jaws reference in that score. I know, right? With yeah. that, with the at the ending, with the big mothership. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, Do you get no. a dead dent? Yeah. It was like it was like it was like it was like trolling them about what was about to happen. Yep. Pretty fun. I missed it. Oh man, come on! I missed it. Well, I'm not good at watching movies, guys. I've noticed that in our <laughs> discussions, especially the ones about Spider Verse. Yeah, yeah, I've been meaning yeah. to talk to you about that. Well, guys, it's all about. Did, have you noticed how? Close Encounters of the Third Kind decouples ritual from meaning. Did you guys notice that? No, actually, I didn't. That's <laughs> <laughs> probably because it doesn't. It, <laughs> hey, if you didn't listen to Spider-Verse Part 2, which, let's be honest, you've listened to Spider-Verse Part 2 three or four times now to mine all the gold from that particular gold mine. But if you didn't listen to it, then you don't know the joke that I'm making at my own expense regarding the silly way that I wrote a certain thing that I believed. All right. So, guys, we are talking today about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a little movie by Stevie Spielberg, his third film, released in 1977, same year as Star Wars, a little bit later in the year than Star Wars. Same year as Alien. Same year as Alien, a golly year for space adventure. Star Wars, Alien, and Close Encounters. Wow. Bam, bam, bam. Yeah, and you you can argue that, about that you can argue it's it's three different approaches to what's out there. One is pure horror. One is pure benevolence, and I don't know what Star Wars is just like. Star Wars is not. We <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> an avatar right. for processing your own hero's journey. That's Star Wars. Okay. Well, anyway, speaking of. Star Wars. Oh, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. He's yes, you do. a star who of this podcast who goes to war with pop culture every week on this podcast as he talks about movies. His name is Benjamin Solzer. He is. And he talks about it every week. We just don't. Oh, yeah. We put, ben in a, we put Ben in a room. We tell him the microphone's running. He talks about movies. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> we get a lot of thoughts on samurai movies. And <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Every other week we, we, uh, we have record. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true. Keeps He's, me going. Yeah, yeah. Look, Ben, why don't you keep going right now yeah. by introducing the third person on the podcast, our good f- mutual friend, Jake Menzel, master who's a master of cinema. Why don't you go ahead and introduce him and tell people what his whole deal is? <laughs> well, it's Pastor Jake Menzel, our friend who <laughs> uses the force of his personality and his insights <laughs> <laughs> to talk about movies. Right. Hi, Jake. Hi. Hey guys, I have a fun exercise. Which one of us is aliens? Which one of us is Star Wars? And which one of us is Close Encounters? Uh, I don't even know what that means, but I think you're Close Encounters. <laughs> I, think, <No! laughs> I think Jake is alien and I'm Star Wars. That is <laughs> such a bogus self-aggrandized. <laughs> Ben's what? like, I'm fun. Jake is the prince of death. And Nathan is just warm, evil, <laughs> warm, benevolent <laughs> nothingness. Uh, morally bankrupt. <laughs> morally bankrupt, benev- warm, fake benevolence. Faux <laughs> no. transcendence. Let me tell you the, the, how I think. I think I get to be alien because I'm dark. Wow. And... Uh, 
I don't know, Ben, since you're the one that did this whole thing, I'm assigning you close encounters. <laughs> you're fake benevolent, Man. <laughs> but secretly dark. And Jake's Star Wars because he's got a lot of heart and he likes to sing, <laughs> swing over chasms with his sister and- hanging on to him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I'm really great at dialogue. <laughs> he's really great at dialogue. <laughs> oh. Would you like to assign them, Jake? We, me and Ben have both assigned them. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to assign anybody the dark, angry, I want to run away from my family and responsibility and hate everything. Isn't that funny that we would all rather be alien than Close yes, Encounters? Absolutely. I, oh, man. Absolutely. Because yeah. Alien at least is like, I'm going to burst through the chest of your, your <laughs> stupid arguments and... You know, you can put a good, you can put a positive spin on Alien. (laughs) (laughs) I understand how corporate greed destroys everything. And anyway, three great films, three great podcasters talking about one (laughs) crummy movie. (laughs) It's a well-crafted movie. Well, we're going to get into it. It's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And why did we decide to talk about this movie? This is an honest question. I don't actually remember. Because we uh, decided that we would make September Amblin month. And we wanted to do Spielberg. And we wanted to do something fun and a little out of the box. And it came down to the sure easy win of all easy wins. To be easy. Sugar Land Express? Yes. Sugar Land Express. Not easy. Or Close Encounters for some reason. Yeah, we talked about doing late era Spielberg, you know, your Minority Report or Tintin. Or, and the, and those we decided are, we wanted to do something early. Yeah, like we wanted to do a classic. It, it would be fun to talk about post-classic Spielberg at some point. But, which I would say anything post-Saving Private Ryan is is actually is post-classic Spielberg. You could, you could argue that Minority Report is a classic of its own kind, but in any case. It kind of is. Yeah, it kind of is. It's pretty great, although I haven't seen it for many, many years. <laughs> I, I saw it. And I've seen it in the last 10 years, and it, it held up. And so you think it might be the last great Spielberg popular entertainment? I think so. I mean, I really I think I'd be ready to. I think, I think I'm. I might argue that Tintin is actually the last great Spielberg popular entertainment because it's pretty good. It's pretty good, but I've not. It was okay. It was kind of throwaway. Tintin. Yeah. It, it feels good. It, 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 it's sort of like the BFG is kind of the same thing. It's good, but it's not like great. Yeah. I've n- I, I never bothered. Which but one? I think, I feel like Minority. The BFG. I think. Oh, I haven't seen it. It's good, but not great. I feel like Minority Report is at least worth revisiting and asking the question. It, maybe we would conclude no, but. Certainly an influential movie design-wise and... One of the most influential movies of the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely came out post-millennium. And everything you know about your iPhone and iPad and all user interface Mm -hmm. is shaped by that movie. Yeah, except for if we don't want to transfer a file from one computer to another, we don't have to put on gloves and then take the digital file out and transfer it. My report actually complicates things a little bit, but it's, yeah, it's, but even like the visuals and like a Marvel movie with Iron Man, and if you ever have like, yeah, yeah, everything that Iron Man Marvel is just sub Minority Report. That's all. Yeah. Well, we're not here to talk about Minority Report. I kind of wish we were because, uh, well, Close Encounters is going to be heck of fun to talk about, but 
it is a problematic movie. I think I we did would all not know. realize how how bad that movie was. It was not fun to watch. In my, I, I didn't have. Oh, fun. It, it it has it has its fun moments. It's the truck scene, the horror scene in the house. Like I, I think the first act is great. I love the first act. I hate the second act where he's just going insane and yes, his family doesn't too. like him. And, and then all the stuff where he's like running around Wyoming or Montana or whatever that is. Is it Montana? Where's Devil's Tower? Wyoming. Wyoming. That's kind of boring. When the spaceships come, I mean, it's suitably impressive and stuff, but the messaging is terrible. But but there is a wonderful little They're Watching Us movie where, where Dreyfus goes out in his truck and yep. and then the kid getting abducted. I mean, that stuff is classic Spielberg at his full powers. Yeah. Yeah. Glowy orange lights illuminated by mist. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I mean, all the stuff that the Stranger Thing boys thought that they could try and do. Mm-hmm. The oven might eat you if you're not careful. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the coming up through the vent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. That, that stuff's great. That I, I, I love the first act of this movie. Even just the dorky Francois Truffaut is standing in front of this or that arf- artifact while Bob Balaban translates you've for got, him. Yeah, you've got the planes and you've got the the ship and well, the ship's more it's middle. It's not, yeah. yeah, it's not the first act. Ship's actually one of the research shoots that Spielberg did for the director's cut. And yeah, huh. <laughs> really. What baggage did you, let's, let's start here. What baggage did you guys bring? Had you seen this movie before? Did I you had rem- seen it. And yeah. did you like, remember liking it or? I remember being glad I watched it. And just kind of as a ch- check that one off the the list, kind of you have to yeah. watch it at least once kind of thing. Yep. Do you like aliens and alien movies? I have seen Alien. That's the only one I've seen. No, I mean movies oh, with aliens. Not the Sigourney Weaver, Weaver franchise. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I I do. I like I like that sort of thing. I like E.T., I like War of the Worlds, I like all kinds of stuff like that. I'm it's a interesting suck- to me. I'm a sucker for it and I especially was as a kid. I mean it's it was that and dinosaurs. I mean Spielberg really spoke to me as a kid because he covered a lot of my bases in terms of and probably cre- helped create a lot of my bases, but man, G- I, g- give me X-Files, Saucerman type stuff any day over dinosaurs. Yeah. As a kid. Ooh, mm. that's a hard choice. I might take dinosaurs. Uh, but m- me as a kid, I'm going aliens and saucermen over dinosaurs for sure. Yeah, I think I, I was the same. It's, it's it, the mystery and the intrigue of mm-hmm. something else something out there, out there. that mm-hmm. could be in the allure of the the unknown. The, the unknown, the, the transcendent, the forbidden, the conspiratorial, the... When you put it that way, yes, I am. I mean, I remember going out to watch meteors as a kid and just what's out there in the sky, the vastness of it, the unknown, yeah. studying the planets in school, all that kind of stuff was really intriguing to me. And the X-Files was actually scary to me because I didn't really become a horror kid until... I was a young teenager and I remember my parents watching X-Files like when I was a kid and just being creeped out by the music and by the credit sequence and yeah. not really understanding what it was, but knowing it was something that was mysterious mm-hmm. and potent. And then, of course, two of the biggest hits from our collective childhood, early teenage years are Independence, Independence Day, Day and, and Men, Men in Black. Black. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Both of those movies, I think all three of us probably brought more intrigue to than the movies themselves as artifacts actually bring. Like Independence Absolutely. Day is not yeah. a great movie, but 
like it doesn't do a lot to make you feel the mystery of space and aliens and stuff. But you feel it as a kid because there's a big saucer hovering over us and there's glowy blue light inside of it. And mm-hmm. what are they here for? And yeah. And we'd never seen, you know, we, we didn't all grow up. I mean, I mean, Ben, of course, watched the Sigourney uh, Weaver franchise while um, drinking from his his bottle. Right. In his crib. That's what I did. Would wheel a TV. That's in. what my parents would do to entertain me. Fun fact about you, Ben. <laughs> also, yep. 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 That's, that's not true at all. Yep. But my point is, we hadn't seen a lot of Dark. the alien things. And so, yep. either the Sigourney Weaver franchise or other alien things. And so, Stargate, man. Stargate. <laughs> as a kid, Stargate was my favorite thing. That, my dad loved that movie. And we'd watch that. I've watched that movie more times than I. Care to admit? Well, I can't believe how many times I've seen that movie. Kurt Russell, yeah. one of the great heroes of uh, alien fighting, and the thing too. Kurt Russell is just a good alien. Kurt fighter. Russell is what a great movie star. <sighs> Roland Embrick, you have shaped more of our childhood than know. we care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> Roland Embrick. <laughs> Maybe we should just one day. When this podcast has truly come to its fruition, we'll it's have to... To its dotage. To its dotage. Yeah, we'll just do a, a straight Emmerich run. Oh, talk about... Oh, man. I, I have actually never seen anything after The Patriot. I think I tapped out after The Patriot. I've never seen like 1000 BC. The Day After the Tomorrow? Day after, I've, I've seen parts of that on TV, maybe. The Day After Tomorrow is such a movie, boring What this show's going to do in its dotage is just be a discussion of ancient aliens shows of ancient on. aliens yeah we'll actually review the show ancient aliens yeah, exactly. every episode that's what i mean and discuss yeah. them <laughs> well my, my baggage is similar to jake's i i love aliens and i did not see this movie until i was a teenager i think and it was even i was old enough that this was a checkbox like i knew spielberg was one of the guys and i needed to see it and i don't remember being particularly excited about it but i remember it being effective i don't remember not liking it. It would have been around the same time that I saw Rocky. I associate those two as far as like Nathan's a young budding cinephile and he just needs to tick some boxes. And in both cases, I think I didn't quite understand. I must have been pretty young, maybe 11 or 12. I didn't quite, I got it. Like I got, there's nothing much to get about Close Encounters or Rocky. But going back to both of them as adults, I'm like, there's a lot of subtext to both of these things in terms of Rocky's relationship. I mean, it's not complicated, but some stuff that was above an 11 year old's head. And certainly Mm -hmm. Dreyfus's relationship with his wife and everything that we're about to litigate Mm -hmm. went over my head the first time I saw this movie. It was just a movie about shiny aliens Mm -hmm. coming down. I think the lack of any kind of a discernible, real violent conflict in the movie probably turned me off a little bit. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, after Independence Day, you wanted your aliens to be a little bit more malicious. It was kind of weird to see them be so so nice. (laughs) And But I remember liking the movie. Ben, what baggage do you bring to aliens as a species? Uh, I liked various cheesy movies about aliens. There's some like Flight of the Navigator. I like that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a kid, it probably is still kind of fun. Other, let's see, what the explorers? Pee like Herman famous, plays uh, the ship. Yeah, and he was great at it. The explorers. If anyone saw that eighties no, movie, saw it. It, was about, it, was, it was really fun. It's probably inappropriate, but it's a kids' movie about kids going into space. Is that the Joe Dante one? Yeah, yeah. Which explains why it's it was slightly classy, like. Joe Dante has a pretty good eye, and Joe Dante. They just a, like make their own spaceship or something. Like. They do something like that. Do they get like a a a word from? Do they get an alien message, Dreyfus style? Like they know how to build it because aliens want want I, to meet them. I really can't remember. I just remember it was fun, and 
the whole messaging of the movie is it's all directed at kids. I want to say it's even a message about like a thing, your parents or something. I'm not sure. Probably not. Probably I don't know. It's too far. It's from that era when it's Dante a- was just cranking out one sort of B classic that's mm-hmm. not quite an A classic after mm-hmm. another. You got like your gremlins yeah. and your howling and your that. And I don't yeah. know. I, I, it's, it's been too long. But anyway, I liked alien stuff. I never saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I never felt until any... now. You watched it for the podcast, yeah, right? Until now, I never felt any curiosity. Did you feel? Did you avoid it? Like, did it have a negative? I didn't, I didn't vibe particularly in your mind? avoid it. I just had a boring vibe in my mind. Like, well, I do like alien movies, but I feel like nothing is going to happen in this one except it's going to be about a benevolent encounter with aliens, and I just don't care enough. The first time I watched it, I didn't know that it was benevolent. Mm-hmm. And so I had some of the the fun of... Mm-hmm. Which would totally be the way whole... of seeing this movie. The That's abduction right. scene would have so much yeah. more juice well, to if it. In and... 1977, you haven't had Star Wars and you haven't had Alien and you haven't had any of these other things that we've been talking about. What you've had is H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and mm-hmm. a bunch of other body snatcher type, you know, weird stuff. And then to throw this sort of like mashup of horror that would have been fun right yeah and i I had i had a little bit of that on my first my first watch of it but still being seeing it in sometime in the 2010s probably Uh yeah i I think you've watched it post nathan well not not after not yeah no i think i think i I remember talking to to watch it yeah we talked i remember talking to you about it yeah, it was, it was maybe it. one of those like, well, the wife and the kids are out of town. What uh, sort of box should I tick? Yep. Nathan, well, Jake, you could do worse than watching one of the classic Spielberg uh, joints. And Yeah, I think I think we were probably starting this. It may have been in the last five or six years. I think because I think you were encouraging me to round out my missing Spielberg. Yeah, just a... Get a few of those AFI top 100 so you can have a little bit more context as we talk about things. Yeah, that's yeah. That's, that's not unlikely. Yeah, because I remember in the same... No, Poltergeist was af- well after. You definitely watched Poltergeist for this podcast. And that was... A, that was. Did we... Oh, did we do that last... Yeah, we did October? that last year. That was... that was. Wow. We did that on the show? If you want my self-assessment... I, not with me, but you guys did. Okay. Yeah. I think I think it was the first time I was really, really, really excited about this podcast because we had such a fun discussion about Spielberg and That's suburbia. Right. Man. And it's it's a terrible, stupid movie, but it we we there was a lot to talk about in it. Yeah. And yeah, That's right. Kind of the, the dark flip side of this movie. Not that this movie particularly needs a dark flip side, hmm. as we're as we're about to discuss. Hmm. Well, Spielberg is much better. When he knows what he's angry about and is just... Nazis! <laughs> They're the worst! <laughs> and he's ready to kill the crap out of the people that Crush them! Blow them up! <laughs> Put them in a pot! <laughs> Melt them! Well, yeah. Yeah. This is a movie that is angry and does not... It's so angry. I Interesting fun fact. Me and Jake, independent of each other, both just watched Jaws for various reasons, which we've yep. both seen a million times before. But I think it probably helps this discussion that we both have Jaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Close Encounters is the blank check movie that Spielberg gets to do after Jaws makes all the money in the world. Yeah. Spielberg. Jaws 75, Close Encounters 77. Right. Right on top of each other. Huh. One, two, slam, bang, punch. Spielberg owns the world forever after that. Yeah. And then the 80s is just E.T., Indiana Jones. It's one of the greatest 
artistic runs and popular the last couple media hundred years, popular period. media period yeah in the history yeah. of film certainly it's it's arguably the best popular run and the most popular popular run that anyone's ever and had for the most important and therefore the most important in terms of shaping early cinema as we like to say cinema is young we'll see how important it is in a thousand years but in terms of shaping where we're at i don't think you could name you'd be hard pressed to name anything i mean short of like the jazz singer introduced sound or <laughs> cinema kane or cinema kane citizen kane. kane helped collate visual storytelling there's things like that yeah right. But in terms of what movies are about and how they're about what they're about and how they're sold and what kinds of stories we enjoy and who they're marketed to and all those kinds of questions that influence everything that you watch, dear listener. And it's just remarkable how can they how they can be such touchstones to reshape everything about the way cinema is done and still hold up. Mm-hmm. And be start to finish enjoyable and not feel slow or stupid or anything. Mm-hmm. There are complaints we'll have about Close Encounters on on those fronts, but Jaws, E.T., uh, E.T., Raiders, of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark. There is nothing to complain about in terms of it's just the structure, the pacing, the everything about the structure and the, pacing uh, holds the language, up. Visual language, yeah. fifty years later. Yeah, this is crazy. Yeah, no, those movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Along yeah. with a handful of things like the original Star Wars and, and things like that, they just simply, you don't have to be a cinephile. You don't have to know anything about the history of where these movies are. You just, I mean, who doesn't love Raiders of the Lost Ark? Who doesn't love E.T.? It's just, yeah. <sighs> well, let me give a little bit of context for this movie. I think you have to understand these guys as baby boomers. You have to understand by these guys, I mean, the whole movie brat generation, Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, all the guys who are kind of the, the, the grandfathers of cinema now, the old guard now. I think you have to understand them as baby boomers. And for that, you kind of have to understand the middle of the 20th century and what happened. And I don't understand what happened. I think it's easy to be cheap about what happened, but. I don't know. Those those that greatest generation goes off, they fight a big war, they defeat Hitler. It's great. And then we have the 1950s and we kind of maintain the facade of civilization, and then civilization falls to pieces and we've never gotten it back. We could sit here and we could talk about it for a million hours and throw out all kinds of theories. I mean, I suspect it's because they were just so the greatest generation was so burned out from defeating ultimate evil that they just didn't have the heart to discipline their kids. Maybe they had the heart to discipline them, but they didn't have the heart to get their kids' hearts. I mean, maybe yeah. what they didn't have was affection. Yeah. Maybe they knew yeah. how to do the yep. John Wayne thing, but they didn't know how to yeah. have their hearts. Because you see the the baby boomers, and it's a generation that just wants to disassociate from their parents, wants to rebel, wants to grow their hair long, wants to, you know, 60s counterculture. And, and then wants to live with a... Y- as they come into the 90s with sentimentality and nostalgia for their parents and their parents' generation and the greatest generation and the generation who they completely stuff. cast off and said, stop holding us back, losers. Yeah, but then we're going to revisit and do all of our, we're going to have Saving Private Ryan and we're going to have all of the, you know, 
Well, Spielberg, by the way, is the perfect avatar for that because his early movies are all family sucks. I am an angry young man. Everything that I've been told about this suburban lifestyle is garbage and I hate it. And I'd like to just get on a spaceship and middle finger to everyone. And now in his dotage, (laughs) he makes these cheesy historical dramas about Tom Hanks is a member of the greatest generation and he's helping the, the bridge of spies or whatever, you know, it's, it's like all there was this great horse Mm -hmm. in the war that, yeah, he just makes movies about Tom Hanks (laughs) being a member of the greatest generation and being great. (laughs) Yep. He wants to be completely sentimental about it. He wants to tell us how great it all was. The very thing that he is arguably most responsible for leading the charge of just tearing that all to pieces and showing it for the hypocrisy that he apparently thought it was like, there's not there's not a movie that's more angry at the notion the 1950s of sentimentality is what you get when you don't love something that you feel guilty mm. for not loving. You spend your life kicking mm-hmm. something to pieces and then you try and tell everyone how sentimental you are about it. And yeah, how much sentimental you love it. Sen- we sentimentalize things that we hate and feel bad about hating. That's what we do. It's a fake superficial love for things that we just don't love and feel bad about not actually loving we say this a lot of time but go back to the victorian era look at the way they sentimentalized children as they sent them to factories and coal mines and coal mines and suddenly you have tiny tim and he's this beautiful angelic creature and you have these mawkish paintings of kids and it's it's ridiculous it's it's borderline obscene some of it but they're pouring all this sentiment to the point of almost eroticizing them they're pouring this sentiment onto kids and it's because they just feel terrible about what they're doing to children. Yep. Uh, I think what you said, discipline without affection is true. Yeah. I mean, it's the, I think that's true. It's the stereotype of John Wayne. He's not going to talk to the kid. He's just going to throw him in the pool and say, learn to swim. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's your, your placeholder for the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. And then you have this generation of... Strong but silent type. Yeah, people <laughs> who are just like, we needed you to be strong and talk to us. That would have been really nice. Yeah. And also, you guys were just as sexually promiscuous as we were. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just want to be honest about it. Now, I'm not trying to glorify the counterculture movement because it was evil. But the thing about the counterculture movement is there's always been student protesters and there's always been a co- counterculture. You can go to any year, you know, go to the 18th century and you have the Bohemians, go to the early 20th century and you have the anarchists. But suddenly in the, th- the interesting thing about the 60s and mid-century America is not that there were hippies. What's interesting is that they actually became the dominant culture. They won. They won. And that's something that, by and large, hasn't happened in Western civilization up to that point. And so, yeah, it's just fascinating. And I think to get us to 1977, what you really have to think about is the fact that You have this generation of young people that are just mad in the 1960s. They're tired of the masks. You don't love me, dad. And there's this, similar to now, there's this really sharp divide between what Nixon called the silent majority, you know, just the working class, greatest generation people that just wanted to go on like things were. And then the counterculture, the student revolutions, the hippies, the people who wanted free love, who wanted to be themselves, to experiment with drugs, and things just become really sharply divided. And you have Vietnam, and you have the death of Kennedy in 63, and you have all these things 
And what I really want to talk about is the New Age movement, because I think Lucas and Spielberg are two of the great popularizers of the New Age movement. And you have to understand that as coming out of the 1960s and 1970s counterculture, where people just feel so burnt by institutional authority and by authority in general that they really want something to believe in. And so they just start turning to all this, all this stuff, all this Hindu and Taoist and these different sort of tune in and find higher consciousness. Things that seem to allow them to find that higher meaning independent of existing authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's all such crap, but it gets such a hold in the early, late 60s and early 70s. You have like all this, and it starts in San Francisco as every wonderful thing about our culture does. It starts in the beautiful Bay City and, you, you know, you have the hippie movement sort of transform into this new age movement where they just want to channel their inner selves, transcend reality, merge with the forces of the divine in the universe. And it's not like there's one movement, but there's increased interest in the occult, in UFO religions, in UFOs in general, in Eastern religions, in old school paganism. Like all these things are suddenly becoming popular. In, in, in large, in also really connect, connected to the psychedelic drug movements yeah. of the 60s and 70s as well. Yeah, exactly. And so people are having these out-of-body experiences, actual, well, not literal, but actual things that feel like out-of-body experiences. People are transcending reality. And the one thing that anyone, I've not done it, of course, but the one thing that anyone will tell you about taking LSD or any kind of hallucinogen is there's the time before you took that and there's the time after that. And once you're Consciousness has been altered. It does not go back. You do not see the world the same way. You do not think about things the same way. Yep. Which is a pretty universal testimony. Pretty universal testimony. And I think a very frightening one. Yep. Some Hmm. people would see it as a very beautiful one. Hmm. But I mean, I was just in preparation for this. I was watching some documentaries about the 60s and 70s. And it's just insane how much it reminds you of today in terms of the sharp, nasty, mean-spirited divide between the conservatives and the liberals, or I don't know how you'd want to cast them, between the young people and the old people, between the the people who want see themselves as progressive and the f- people who see them as traditional you have Nixon, he gets elected in 68, 69, something like that. And he runs on, I'm going to pull us out of Vietnam. And then he ends up invading Cambodia in 70. And then you have the Kent State massacre, as people call it, where there's this violent student protest and the Ohio National Guard goes in and four people are killed. And then in response to that, you have the hard hat riot, which is all these, I wrote it down here. 800 office workers and 400 construction workers who attacked about a thousand demonstrators, students who were students, you know, that were striking against the Vietnam War. And so, like, the conservative people get so mad that they just attack and beat the crap out of the students. And so, it's just riots. And I don't know. It's it's interesting that this stuff doesn't get talked about more, that you have to, like, I guess most people know Kent State, but I didn't remember the hard hat riot. (laughs) No, I don't know about this stuff. And the hard hat riot is called the hard hat riot because it's a bunch of construction workers. Nixon invites the leaders of the movement to the White House and they give him a freaking hard hat and he wears it to to show solidarity with these construction workers that just went and 
beat the crap out of <laughs> hippies, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and so, I mean, it is nothing's new under the sun. Trump, Biden, it is it is like that level of cultural war. Polarization. Polarization and yep. more of a hot war than a cold war. People yeah. are angry at each other and they are demonizing each other. And it's this really nasty time. And it's this, and much like now, it's this really apocalyptic time. You have nuclear war always on the horizon. You have the Cold War. You have Russia. You have Vietnam. You have people going to die in Vietnam and nobody really understands why. And it just keeps escalating. And people are like, what are we even fighting for? And the soldiers don't know. And the soldiers, I mean, we've all seen the documentaries and things. I don't have to rehash all of this. Yeah, but it is, it is, it is very similar. And it's similar yeah. too in that you have Vietnamese fighting for their homes, fighting for their land. Yeah. And then you have a bunch of American soldiers and British soldiers and French soldiers like, we don't actually know why we're here or what we're even trying to accomplish. And so it's just this really scary, divided time. And people want things to believe in. And lithium and opium, man. That's what we're fighting for. Yeah, well, exactly, man. <laughs> exactly, you understand. <laughs> And so again, in the 1970s, that really just turns into a big popular, I think maybe the last big popular spiritualist movement on that level. I mean, today, spiritualism of that type is just kind of accepted. and But in terms of just popular occultism, popular paganism, pop, in terms of the boom of horror movies that happened, you have Rosemary Baby hit 69, something like that. The book The Exorcist is published in 73. They're just giant bestsellers and Stephen King launches his career in the seventies. Anybody, you know, like you or me or any of us could have written a horror book and got it published at that time. It was just like the easiest thing. The market was glutted. People were so into the occult, the supernatural, new age crap, healing, acupuncture, like all that stuff that we kind of take for granted now was just booming in the early 1970s. And, and some of that is people being very optimistic and wanting to believe in higher powers and benevolent powers, like what Close Encounters is eventually going to give us. A lot of that is just people processing their fears. I mean, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist as the two big horror properties are interesting because they're both about people being invaded by having their domestic lives. You know, Rosemary's having a baby and then The Exorcist is famously about a little girl who gets possessed. And so they're both like these stories of this big, scary other coming into my normal little existence. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine for a conservative America that's suddenly dealing with hippies and new age people and like all this stuff, it was really potent to think my baby just might be the devil or my daughter might be possessed by the devil. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's barely a metaphor in terms of what people are dealing with and what they're scared of. And then I think you have all the stuff going on. And then I think you, you, you really have to see Lucas and Spielberg as being like they do for the, for new age philosophy, what McDonald's does for hamburgers. They just figure out a way to package it for absolutely everybody. And they do it. They both do their master strokes in 1977, actually at the, the culmination of all these fears, all these anxieties, all these sort of, problems and, and chaos and, and and then you have two guys you know I, I don't want to overstate it but but i think that they do make a profound cultural impact and make a 
we don't necessarily think if I said name a great new age proponent, you you wouldn't first think of Lucas or Spielberg. You might think of Lucas. Actually. Yeah, you might think of mm-hmm. Lucas, but, but not Spielberg. But 1977, Close Encounters and Star Wars both came out, and they are two of the best popular media statements of benevolent new age transcendent garbage and then alien is one of the a good statement <laughs> of like mal- malevolent yeah yeah it's not it, you wouldn't even call it new agey but it does have a feeling of a spirit it has a spiritual component to it right it's like not in the text of the film but well i think in the same way jaws jaws is actually very similar to alien it is just mm-hmm. there is a thing it will not stop it is go- coming to destroy us you get in the water you do this prosaic fun family activity it ends in blood. It ends in death. You cannot stop it. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. I mean, it's barely subtext. It's just text. So Spielberg has made some of the great malevolent higher power movies. And I think Jaws is, oh, even though it's about a shark, like there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing literal about that shark. He doesn't behave like sharks behave. <laughs> the movie does such a good job of tricking you into thinking it's about a shark, but it's actually just about a monster. Like, Mm -hmm. if you know anything about sharks, Jaws is ridiculous. There's nothing plausible about the movie. But the movie does such a good job of just making you feel like if I go into the water, this unstoppable force that just, this unstoppable and personal force that just wants to destroy me, will. And it's it's really scary, actually, in a way that transcends sharks. Mm -hmm. Or in a way that made people suddenly associate sharks with that sort of fear forever. Yeah. I mean... Shark Week exists because of Jaws. Yeah. It's really, it really just doesn't exist without Jaws. Right. Shark Week's cool. Shark Week is cool. Jaws is cool. Well, anyway, 1977, Lucas and Spielberg both come out with these broad, grand statements of new age optimism. And it's interesting. I don't think that they shifted the culture, but I think that they at least had their fingers to the wind and knew which way it was shifting because we do ship. avatars, man. Yeah, they are. They just channeled the culture because we do shift into this Reagan economic boom and this, this kind of optimistic, our anxieties have at least quieted down and America's actually pretty awesome. And our movies are all Rambo's going to go back and save the the Fets this time, the prisoners of war, the POWs this time. And you do also have to see Spielberg and Lucas and all those movie brats as being that generation that we just described. They are the counterculture. There is institutionalized Hollywood and institutionalized Hollywood is old and stupid and doesn't know what to do with all these anxieties. And then people like Spielberg and Scorsese and Lucas come along and they're like, let us actually channel this stuff for the youth of today in a way that will be potent. And a lot of times they weren't very well understood and they had to fight to make their way into the movie. But the only other thing I really want to talk about in terms of context is just Spielberg, because I obviously we need to talk about Spielberg, but his personal life is more interesting than I actually remembered that it was. I knew he probably didn't come from a happy, you know, I seem to remember he didn't come from a happy home and how could he with his, we talked about poltergeist yeah with his uh (laughs) sardonic view of suburban life (laughs) whatever Mm -hmm. you want to say but it's interesting the ways that it went that his life went wrong and the kind of brokenness he came from his dad is a computer genius who helped invent computer processing as we know it and his dad is that greatest generation was in the war doing computer stuff i think 
American man, hard worker, away from the family a lot. Just the definition of someone who couldn't give emotionally, but provided for the family and was a good stable of the era, stereotypical dad. And then his mom is kind of what you would expect, actually. She's full of life and wonder. And he describes he describes her as not having a maternal bone in her body, but being a wonderful playmate, like never an authority figure, but Peter Pan. I think Spielberg used that. The, she said, my mom was Peter Pan. Like she, hmm. would, she would just take us on these wonderful adventures and she's just a pure bohemian. You know what you're reminding me of? What's that? A movie that I, <clears throat> as you're talking, I think we actually will have to talk about, like it or not, just Tree of Life, mm -hmm. because those are the two parents you just described. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It, that film is channeling that stuff, too. I mean, yeah, maybe we don't have to talk about it. It's kind of 1950s life. suburbia. It's all that. It, um, it really taps into that. Well, a lot of people Our have friend that. Brett McCracken will be really happy when we talk yeah, about that. Yeah. Well, it has, well, it has we'll a give him a call case. and let him know. Yeah. You've got him on speed dial, I think. I do. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So his his mom is just this bohemian. There's a story of she goes to a pet store when he's young and she sees a monkey that looks sad, so she buys the monkey and brings it home. You know, meanwhile dad's never around. And that's all pretty much what you would expect from Spielberg's home. And here's some more stuff that you would expect. I'm getting to the part that was more was a, maybe a slight subversion. He he's nervous, he's lonely, he's neurotic, he doesn't make friends easily. He likes to make movies with his Super 8 camera, and he watches all the TV and absorbs everything about cinema language. Shocked. What's that? Said I'm shocked. Yeah, so it's shocking, uh -huh. isn't it? And, and makes really good for what they are, home movies, and gets his dad to put up a little bit of money. But his parents' marriage begins to fracture, and he remembers really despising his dad because his dad is just this John Wayne type figure, but then his dad breaks down at a certain point. There's a famous story that he actually cribbed from for Close Encounters where his dad just starts crying at the dinner table or something like that. And Spielberg just feels this hatred, this loathing for him and starts yelling, you cry baby, you cry baby, you cry baby, over and over and over and over again, which is just taken up and planted in the movie that we're talking about. Uh, and his mom becomes really sad and distant and she likes to just sit and play the piano and Stephen is her only son. He's got three sisters, but Stephen's her only son. And so he becomes her confidant and she will tell him, you know, Stephen, I'm so lonely and I'm so sad. And maybe this story isn't that surprising, actually. I don't know. I think I just remembered it differently. Here's the, here's the slightly interesting part. It, Maybe, okay, I'm rethinking. I shouldn't have set this up as a subversion because it's actually just a version, not a subversion. It's, it's actually, actually exactly what you would expect. But here's, here's, here's the, the, the interesting color to the story. When Spielberg's in his, about 20, his, marriage, his, his parents' marriage finally falls apart and his dad leaves and is estranged from the family. And his dad tells the kids, that he is divorcing the mom. The actual facts of the case are that the mom is so bored and lonely and emotionally undernourished and all that stuff that she has an affair with Spielberg's dad's best friend, ends up marrying him, I think was married to him until he died. But the dad wants to take the bullet. He does not want the kids to despise the mom. So he just takes all the blame 
on himself and says like it was my fault i divorced her even though it's quite the opposite i mean obviously it wasn't a good marriage by any stretch of the imagination but the the ultimate person who put a bullet in it was mom but dad does not let the kids know that and so dad and stevie are estranged for something like 20 years and come back together i think around the time of last crusade actually like you can you can track all this through and put little little pins in the dartboard (laughs) through spielberg's career but spielberg hates his dad holy grail Grail. yeah Mm. yeah they find the holy grail but spielberg hates his dad and thinks that his dad is the monster and that his mom is this sympathetic figure and then over the course of his life, his adult life of making films, like over the course of his career that we know, finally puts the pieces together and eventually has a warm relationship with his dad and a warm relationship with his mom and eventually becomes quite an Orthodox Jew, which is around the time of Schindler's List. So, I mean, it's just, it's kind of one-to-one. Like if you made the biopic of Spielberg's life, it would just be sort of lame because every big change that he would make would result in another artistic masterpiece which i which i always hate in biopics it's like ray is like get out of here jack hit the road and then there's a piano right there hit the road wait a second (laughs) (laughs) i hate that moment in every artist biopic but sounds like spielberg's life is actually a lot like that i think like he really one of the things that makes him great is that he just processes it up on the screen in a way that we can all relate to tom draper yep yep oh exactly And so Close Encounters is interesting to put in that paradigm because it's kind of I'm making an excuse for my dad or I'm my dad or I'm I'm bearing the the weight of the fact that I, Steven Spielberg, am actually seeing my dad and myself. But also we're casting the male figure as the dreamer and the everything that he saw his mom as. And then we have this boring prosaic housewife and i don't know we can talk about it but it's interesting to but i the big thing that you have to see is that this is just a guy who he felt like a bohemian outsider in suburbia at the best of times and at the worst of the times he just saw his whole family fall to pieces because of an emotionally distant father and uh, you know a wild erratic artistic whatever you want to say about her mother and so as the primary 20th century interpreter of suburbia, he is someone who hates it. I mean, and has a very, I mean, is there a, is a, it's funny because I'm so nostalgic for, for Steven Spielberg's suburbia. For his childhood. For his childhood. Yeah. I want to live in Spielberg's childhood. Like it feels warm and nice to me. But when you actually think about the movies, like when you think about E.T., you wouldn't want to be in Elliot's oh, no. shoes. I mean, sure, you'd want to meet it. You don't want to meet E.T., but the, the divorce that's going on in that movie is really sad and what's happening to the kids and like there's yeah no you'd love to be uh trick-or-treating in his neighborhood back sure. in the day or something like that maybe with kids everywhere and but yeah you wouldn't want to dad's off in mexico but all those details make it feel like a real mm-hmm. place like you can anchor yourself in the reality because the families are just as bad as your family was and everyone's yelling at each other in the same mm-hmm. way that you used to and everyone's talking in over each other. There's such finely observed detail in the way that Spielberg hates suburbia that you kind of love it <clears throat> anyway just because it's it's such a perfect evocation of it. Really quickly hit the highlights of his career up to this movie. 
the the legend is that once the family moved to California, he would sneak onto Universal Studios. The legend is even that he walked into it's kind of catch me if you can style. He just found a random office and pretended like it was his office for several months as as a young man and just lived on the studio. That's probably not true. I think Spielberg is one of those guys that likes to tell the legend sometimes. But what we do know is that he would sneak onto the studio a lot. He would get on the tour bus. And then when they came to their first bathroom break, he would wait in the bathroom until the studio bus left. And then he would just hang out on Universal lot, the Universal lot. And he would talk to all the tradespeople and learn all the jobs, learn all the camera work and all this kinds of stuff. He was not able to get into USC, which was the big California film school that Scorsese and all these people, uh, Lucas, everybody comes out of. But he did get the money together to make an independent film called... Duel? Nope. Amblin. 26-minute hippie movie about a guy ambling through the desert. No dialogue, really artsy-fartsy. But well-made enough that it caught the eye of one of the production guys, vice president for production of Universal Television, and he gave Spielberg a contract to do TV. And then Spielberg did Duel and a number of other things and was just regarded very highly, quickly a very highly regarded film up and comer, uh, up and comer, mm-hmm. and then just a savant in terms of knowing how to use the camera, knowing where to put the camera, knowing how to work fast and get great results out of actors. Like nobody's ever had a bad word to say. It seems like that part of the legend is true. Somehow, this little kid that never had any formal training just absorbed the language of film and was able to speak it, arguably as well as anyone in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so, duels the famous movie where the truck chases the the other thing the car around and it's all suspenseful and stuff on the strength of that he gets to do jaws jaws is a famous terrible production everything goes wrong goes under budget the shark animatronic thing keeps sinking and it's just (laughs) terrible to try and shoot in the water the tides are changing the colors are changing like nothing about jaws went right except for that it made more money than any movie to that time and was a big smash and helped create the blockbuster wide release movie culture that we knew and loved through COVID and maybe we'll come back now. We'll see. But on the strength of that, Spielberg gets a blank check to do Close Encounters, which is something he's been dreaming of his whole life. Uh, When he was a a young kid, he remembers his dad taking, like waking him up in the middle of the night and saying, let's go see this meteor, the Perseids, I think it was. And so they go and see this meteor shower and it's just this very magical mystical experience in Spielberg's life. And after that, he's always loved aliens and believed in aliens and project blue book. You can listen to our UFO episode of sound of sanity Mm -hmm. to get some of the context on that. But there's a lot of people that were the close encounters is on the cutting edge of like all the science, all the stuff that the Frenchman is doing. That's all stuff that was being done at the time. That Frenchman is based on a character or on a person who, I mean, you can like go listen to his uh, like interviews on Rogan. I forget his name off the top of my head, but he's based on some. Is it uh, J. Allen Hynek? Hynek. It may be Hynek. Hynek's the guy that coined the phrase close encounter, the various levels of. Hynek worked for Project Blue Book, which we talked a lot about on our UFO episode. And he was a skeptic who set out to disprove these things. And then famously ended up saying, there's just no way that there's not something out there. It doesn't have to be an alien, but it's hmm. something. There's just, there's too much evidence. Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée, okay. Hmm. So an actual Frenchman. Yeah. Huh. 
pretty sure that that's the right story. Maybe somebody out there listening can can get that right. But I think Jacques Vallée is who Spielberg based that Frenchman on. And you can go listen to him talk about alien stuff and whatever on Rogan. But different. I think he was a linguist. Mm-hmm. So I think the whole like linguistic. But this movie obviously has an interest in with we can communicate through color and through you know, color and that, music yeah. and things like that. What are the universals that we could use to communicate mm-hmm. with? Which actually Spielberg's first idea and probably a more sophisticated one was is we can use math to communicate. That's that's the universal language. But he knew that that was not cinematic. He had to wait for Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, he had to wait for Denis Villeneuve to make an utterly morally bankrupt uh, piece of garbage. Hey, speaking of which, let's see. Jake might have some more details about Jacques. What's his name? Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée. I think I'm looking him up. Yeah, in the meantime, the only other thing I will say about this movie is you have to understand Star Wars was being made at the same time as this movie. So Spielberg wasn't drawing on all the innovations that Star Wars had. I'll just read his... Uh, yeah, let's hear it. This is his Wikipedia entry, and I'm just going to read the just blurb at the top. Jacques Vallée... Born September 24th, 1939, is an internet pioneer, computer scientist, venture capitalist, author, ufologist, and astronomer currently residing in San Francisco and Paris. In mainstream science, he began his professional life as an astronomer at the Paris Observatory. Vallée co-developed the first computerized map of Mars for NASA in 1963. He later worked on the Network Information Center for the ARPANET, the precursor to the modern internet as a staff engineer of SRI International's Augmentation Research Center under Douglas Engelbart. He's also an important figure in the study of UFOs, first noted for a defense of the scientific legitimacy of the extraterrestrial hypothesis and later for promoting the interdimensional hypothesis. So he's sort of like this theorist type person. And yeah. But all the things, all the big theories about what would they be like? Mm-hmm. How would they get here? How would we know interdimensionality being more likely for us to have any kind of plausible encounters? How would we communicate with them? Right. That sort of thing. It, that's my understanding. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, the, the, the larger point is that it was in the ether at the time and there were any number of people who took it as seriously as the Francois Truffaut character does and uh, as the various factions in this movie take it project blue book was a government funded project to document encounters with the extraterrestrial or with unidentified flying objects. And Hmm. they compiled thousands of reports, interviewed thousands of people. J J Allen, Dr. J Allen Hynek who worked for project blue book was a skeptic who became a believer and coined the phrases close encounters of the first kind second kind and third kind i don't remember what each one of those is close encounters of the third kind is obviously when you meet them i think first kind is when you see them like when you see something in the sky second kind okay yeah i'm remembering now second second kind i believe is when they leave some kind of a trace or evidence or burn marks or you have some kind of physical interaction with them beyond just seeing something and then close encounters of the third kind is what happens in this movie we we have a so, cl- very close encounter. Wikipedia, if Wikipedia is to be trusted, does say that uh, he is the real-life model for Lacombe in that he attempted to interest Spielberg in an alternative explanation for the UFO phenomenon, arguing he tried to argue that they shouldn't actu- actually be extraterrestrials. 
with Spielberg. Just be interdimensional. Yeah. I finally had his day in court in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And Spielberg said, you're probably right, but that's not what the public wants. This is Hollywood. Yeah. Well, that's why Spielberg. Spielberg, <laughs> he's some guy you never heard of. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, taking the previous pin out of the cork board, the, or anything else on this guy? No. I, if you want to read more about the sort of like uh, frontline, what are the people who really believe and really want to have some kind of scientific basis? What do they really believe? Who are they? Probably we've given those people enough uh, thread to pull on. Yep. Yep. That's interesting stuff. So taking the pin out of the corkboard, special effects, Star Wars was not out. They were working on this concurrently, so they couldn't just draw on the innovations of Star Wars. The big gauntlet that had been thrown down previously was 2001 A Space Odyssey, which you watch now, and it's a little bit clunky, I have to admit. But it was a mind-blowing space movie that was would have been Spielberg's touchstone and the thing that he had to beat. And the big innovation that Star Wars was making at the same time as 2001 is, or I'm sorry, the Star Wars was making at the same time as Close Encounters is uh, something called motion control, where they can film a shot, say, of Richard Dreyfuss walking down a mountain where the camera pans with him. And they can, in a computer, record the way that the camera moves so that when we go to do our special effects shots, we can have the camera move exactly the same way and if we're doing model shots we can have the camera move frame by frame that way which means we can get a moving shot of our model that matches a moving shot of dreyfus or or whatever Hmm. and that means that like if you watch any cheesy old sci-fi flying saucer movie the camera never moves when there's a big special effect thing because they hadn't figured out how to do that and so it's not like you might ask, like, why does that even matter? Who cares? But one reason it matters is because you are you always know when the special effect's going to happen because some, the camera will be moving around as it does. And then suddenly you have this static locked off shot before something exciting happens. And also it limits the dynamic stuff that you can actually do. So, you know, like an old Ray Harryhausen claymation movie, it's always going to be these static shots of the monster rampaging or Jason fighting the Argonauts or Jason doesn't fight the Argonauts. He fights the skeletons, that kind of thing. So the big innovation of this movie is that the camera can track special effects and have that in the same shot with people. And it just adds so much to Mm -hmm. the dynamic nature of these particular special effects and uh, makes them feel really real. And I'd say they mostly still hold up. I mean, it doesn't look like what we're used to in terms of the way that CGI puts shots together, but the spaceships look pretty good and seem to really be there and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The only thing that maybe looks a little weird now is actually the way that they, some of the matte shots of like the sky and the, yeah. just like a, his neighborhood right. establishing yep. shots, mm-hmm. which I think are beautiful. They're beautiful images in and of themselves. They just don't read as realistic anymore That's if right. they ever did. But all right, that's some context. What do you guys think about? Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think we've already basically maybe said our thoughts or alluded to our thoughts enough that people can figure them out. But Ben, you had never seen this movie before. Why don't we start with you? How did sure. How did you feel as you watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Well, like it's a well-made movie and it's Spielberg. 
he's good at speaking the language of movies, no matter what you watch of his. But I didn't like anyone in the movie. I fine. I I'll go with everyone. I liked Lacombe, the French guy, but mm-hmm. I didn't like our main dude. Right. He wasn't sympathetic, and his family wasn't sympathetic. And even when it was sad and awful, it was still like it was like watching Aliens or something. Mm-hmm. I found his wife pretty sympathetic. Okay. Did the movie I'll, mean for I'll you give, too, though? I'll give That's, that to you. I don't, I don't no, really care. No, I'll, I'll, I'll give that to you. I think, I think, I think it, what I, I was... I think it did at least at points. You don't give... It did. It you did. don't give that 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 line... What, what's the stupid line while mm-hmm. they're on the, on, the, on the highway? Right. I think I'm handling this very well. Don't you think I'm handling this pretty well? Pretty well. Yeah. And she's being sweet and coming on to him. Yeah, it was, it like, was very sweet. Well, it's, it was it's almost sweet. like like that's a really sympathetic sweet. read on the wife at that point. It's like Spielberg lacked the maturity to write a consistent character because there are scenes where she just says all the wrong things, doesn't understand anything. She feels like a bad sitcom character who's just designed to be the thing that stands in Richard Dreyfuss's way. And Terry Garr always plays that material more sympathetic than the script. But there's parts where the script seems to really hate her. And then there's parts where the script suddenly wants to give her some depth. And it's just, I, I think it's kind of just bad writing. Like, I, I think, I think what I was picking up on was that the movie was like a shell game exercise about someone looking for a transcendence with no grounding in actual transcendence mm-hmm. or love or goodness. And I think that's why it all failed. That's so. Yeah, Terry Gar is sympathetic. She's sweet. There's some some of the family stuff just feels real. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this is just an actual family. It's not a good family or a healthy family, but it's like an actual family or a family that achieves it. any kind of pathos in their drama. Like you're not so caught up in what's happening to them that you're like, I think that you're devastated yeah. by it either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, could, it, it doesn't. It doesn't even seem to want to draw you in it wants to it wants you to be interested in roy's obsession Mm -hmm. like that's 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 the drama that there is is the obsession with these ufos and his personal quest which is not kind of like we were just talking about into the spider verse it's kind of the same it's like it's not defined in the text of the film Mm -hmm. what does he want he'll just tell you over and over again when characters ask him what do you want i just want to know I just want to see. I just want to know. What do you want to know? Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I just want to know. I just have to be part of it. Why is the image that the aliens imprint on your brain so powerful and magnetizing? Why does it obsess you and compel you? Well, because it does. Well, why does it? Well, because it does. Because it's, it's, it's what there is. I have to go. I have to see. It just does. That's all. That's all that you get. There's, it's just empty. And I, to me, the feeling of emptiness is just evident from the beginning of the film on mm-hmm. and, and put me off of finding much enjoyment except in it's well made. Right. The the science-y investigative parts are actually the kind of fun. Yeah. It has it has a feeling of verisimilitude. That's mm-hmm. a word we like to use around here. It just feels like yeah, this is how people would talk and process it if they were real scientists, not that I would know. But he's Spielberg is really good at evoking that. Like no. this it's not just like these are TV scientists and they say sciencey things. It's like no. Do find out little things an inch at a time. I, I, the, and the, it stacks the deck in 
in dumb ways with the scientists, of but you, you're ready to buy it. It's like, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, I'm a linguist, but I was also a guitar- cartographer, cartographer back sure. in the day. Right. You know, in the opening scene. It's it's clumsy. Later, like later, I used to be a cartographer. Here's the important. Their coordinates. <laughs> but what's, you know? what's not yeah. clumsy is like the visual design and the sound design and the dialogue design it's got that 70s kind of overlapping dialogue that's what i noticed where it's all just kind of buried in the mix and it feels very like you're there not like we have a microphone shoved under the important person i was the family scenes work that way too it's not like you can only hear dreyfus and gar the kids everything's mixed it's very 70s jaws has the same sound design and it's 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 what it's really it was an innovation of sound design at that time it's it's really cool and immersive Mm -hmm. and it makes everything more interesting yeah, it's, it makes you really work in that opening scene too. Yes, like it really does. Nobody knows what's going on, and you don't either. And you have to work as hard as they do to figure out what's going on. Is one of these guys the main character? I'm not sure yeah, yet. What are yeah. they actually? What's actually being said? They have thick accents, and the wind is is way up in the mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and their voices are way muffled, and everybody's fighting, and you're fighting, and you're like there with them, and you're trying to figure out what is going on and how to. It's it's pretty great, pretty yep. genius. I mean, it's exactly what Jaws does. It's like when Dreyfus shows up in draw in Jaws. It's not like this close up of it's Hopper, the great oceanographer. Yeah. It's just he walks up, he starts talking to Roy Scheider's character. There's a bunch of people talking around them. Everything's yes. and the whole movie's kind of like that. The only part of the movie that's not like that is good old Quint, who <laughs> right. is a very movie character <laughs> intentionally. So <laughs> when he like, speaks. We listen. Here I am, stepping out of legend <laughs> and fable. Know, exactly right. <laughs> Quint. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Quint he almost, deserves it. he deserves it, but it, it is almost dorky. Like, yeah. the, the whole movie is so low key. And then you have this one zany character from a, another universe. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he part of fills the show. He's the best. Oh, oh yeah. Movie. Quint's. Quint's wonderful. I love Quint. And the Indianapolis speech, of course, is one of the great moments in cinema. And we'll just have to do Jaws one of these days. But I don't know. But do you have any more major thoughts? So you so you felt pretty checked out. from. You didn't have to wait to get to the end of the movie and see the No, the I, mess, I didn't. You know. I, f- I felt alienated from the movie. <laughs> there you go. You're welcome. Well done. For the whole time. Blue Ribbon. And and I, f- I fitfully enjoyed it on the level of craft. Mm-hmm. But I did not like or care about the characters as a rule. I think everything you said is fair. I think it feels a little sterner than what my take is going to be. But Jake, what's your take? I'm, I'm the stern one. You're so the stern one, yeah. Can... Um, I just thought, well, one way to process your midlife crisis in your rejection of all responsibility is to make a multi-million dollar movie about it. Uh. It's very mature. Well, <laughs> uh, not, not 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 to bring too much of my own personal baggage into this, but let me bring my own personal baggage. So my dad left our family to go be a missionary. That's what happened. And, and you would see him in tears about this kind of thing, right? About mission work, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, did he provide for our family in the way that he should have? Did he uh, stay married to my mom in the way that he should have? No, but he sure did have a big transcendent mission that he had to fulfill for God. Uh. <laughs> and the world is full of irresponsible men who are bored with the wives of their youth and don't have the gumption to actually discipline their children and make them likable and want to just get out. And those guys always find transcendent reasons why 
they don't have to take responsibility for their family. And as a as a parable for that, this movie is absolutely toxic, and I hate it. Yep. Um, <laughs> that being said, <laughs> as, as, as as a light show with aliens, <laughs> I like it. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Spielberg himself has actually said, I would never have the dad get on that spaceship if I made the movie now. I mean, he has, I don't know that he said like, I repent of it. I don't know that he would talk in that language and how could he? Cause this is one of his, his classic touchstones. He can't like disown it, but he has said, there's yeah, just no way that I could there's make. no way that he would do that now. Like you've grown up with Spielberg with mm-hmm. Spielberg and I'll tell you exactly how the movie works now. I, I can write the script for you. He is having problems with his wife and kids. And the whole movie is about like this, this thing. And then they all end up on the tarmac and he has a choice whether to go, go up that ramp or reunite with his, you know, son or whatever. And, and then he chooses family because really right. the thing that he needed was, was there all along. That's, 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 well, that's a thousand percent what Spielberg that's, does. That's now. what, that's yeah. what he does. And he's not going to lay in the dramatic, <laughs> he's not going to give you the dramatic reasons why the character would actually make that choice, but the character is going to make it. It's just like War of the Worlds, what Tom Cruise does, right? Oh, yeah. His son, it's, it's, yeah, it exactly that's, that's, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. War of the Worlds has one of the, War of the and Worlds had a perfectly good nihilistic ending set up. Yeah. And then Spielberg was like, actually, the son's alive and they love each other. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, yeah. Spielberg does that kind of thing all the time. He can never leave well enough alone. This is one of this is actually one of his darkest endings. He just doesn't know it. Even Minority Reports, oh, get it, where where Cruz's kid got kid, you know, killed and disappeared and never came. He never figured out what it was. It's going to end with him and his wife like Are reunited, and, and not just that, but she's pregnant. Yeah, I mean Spielberg is oh, just laid a lid on, and he saved the precogs, and they have a family uh, of yeah. their own together, and they. Yeah, after, after all the nihilistic, dystopian despair of Minority Report, which is very wonderfully done, <laughs> she's pregnant, of all things. I mean, come on. Yep. Come on, movie. But you got to kind of love him for... He went through one divorce. He... When did he... When did... Give us the that timeline. So, I... That is a really interesting question. He is not married, you know, obviously he's not married to his <laughs> second wife, but has he been divorced? That is the big question. I just, I don't, I'm really slow, I guess, but I just, I just had to laugh. I was thinking of the final images of the, of the film. Look, look old former family. Now I have space children. <laughs> They're beautiful. <laughs> They'll be my children now. Yeah, no, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I just... Oh, it's hilarious. Okay, okay, so he's not married. He is dating Amy Irving during this time from 76 huh. to 80. So you have to imagine a lot of the baggage of this movie is him dealing with his parents. Yeah. And being a, just a young man who's angry and probably a little misogynistic. Um, but... I mean, that makes it really read... I really felt... and. I, I know you guys both made the case that nobody's sympathetic, but I felt like Terry uh, Gar is sympathetic. I, yeah, and I felt a lot of solidarity with her, like through the movie. I just felt like, but you can't ultimately side with her because that makes Dreyfus a monster. I mean, the movie but, that but, can't possibly be the way the movie's intended to be read. I, I know, but but I just going along with the movie. I just think this is the right. She's just doing the right things. She's not. When did she do the wrong thing? She 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 holds on. She fights through the shower scene. Like, she's doing everything she can. And then he starts 
throwing plants through the window and, and, she t- she and shoveling dirt in the window throwing bricks. and throwing bricks and getting the kids to throw bricks into the, into the kitchen. And what is she supposed to do? He's lost his mind. Yeah. She I, puts them in the car and, and leaves. I, I think that's, it's all perfectly, I don't resent her at, at all. And I never did. What I, what I resent is the movie making me watch those scenes of her doing that. And then it's still about his transcendent revelation. Well, so the best read you could put on it as metaphor or as parable, like the, the, the terrible gospel coalition read is oh. when you, it's Christian and Pilgrim's progress and his wife and everybody is caught, but he knows God is right. out there. So he puts his hands in his ears and says, eternal life, eternal life. I, I guarantee you it's, some idiot Christian on the internet has had this I read. I know they of, have. Of course um, it is. And the, and the film is a burlesque of that. But uh, I mean, at least that could be a way to actually make Terry Gar sympathetic. Like, okay, she's fine. She just happened to be in the way of this guy finding eternal life in the stars. <laughs> but, yeah. but I always thought the movie, I don't know. It's interesting because there is a sense in which the movie hates her a little bit. I mean, she's comparing yeah. the stupid thing to a taco for, like, she just does not get but he, it. He, he compared it to a hot dog first. And it's a sweet scene and it it's ends with scene. them making love or whatever and it's nice and it's, uh, you feel the sweetness of their marriage. Yeah. It's the one time where you feel like they're married. Oh, this is why these two ended up together yeah. in the first place. Uh, probably because she, she wanted him actually and he thought he was settling because he's an idiot. Right. Um, I don't... I think it's. I don't think the movie knows exactly. I think. I that, think. I think. I think it does feel bad about the wife and kids. That's that's what I'm arguing is that it feels some guilt, and you can't overemphasize the importance of importance of Spielberg putting his words as a kid in the mouth of a you know having that kid yell "cry baby" at your protagonist. Like he's he's finding some sympathy for his own father there, or hmm. something like that. I don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something. He's trying to say it's complicated. It's not just Terry Gar bad. Richard Dreyfus good. Yeah. But she is she is plugged into corporate America and into prosaic concerns and mundane things. Like she's she's always coded as someone who's like looking in catalogs and wants to talk about the the shopping center. I don't remember what the actual dialogue or hmm. points of reference are, but she's just always going to have some boring middle America thing that she wants to talk about before Dreyfus's quest intrudes on their lives. And it does feel a little bit angry to me. Like we're saying, man, isn't it a drag to have a wife and kids when you could be having a space adventure? But then it doesn't want to just make her into a caricature. It wants to, it wants to play fair. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe where I'm landing is it's an angry young man who kind of hates everybody, but he also wants to play fair. And so he includes some things that, play fair but he's not really mature enough to actually play fair yeah yeah it's almost more i i don't know it's a little eastern it's like yeah we're i'm guilty and i hurt a lot of people along the way but there's a there's a time which you have to leave that behind so sure i'm guilty but also goodbye that is very eastern in that sense well the one thing i was called i was chosen i was called i was chosen sorry that you weren't like i'm sorry that i did a bad job of leaving but and i couldn't bring you with me but there's higher business here if there's absolutely no regret when he goes into the spaceship. No. It's just no. like and we as filmmaker or as 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 people sitting in the audience, we are not supposed to even remember Terry Gar and the kids at that point. We're not supposed to think like, oh, that's weird. He's never gonna who's gonna take 
what they're just living with this like you're not actually supposed to ask that question you're just well, supposed to be like roy neary found his actual aliens from outer space saw that this man was unhappy they read it on him mm -hmm. with their lasers and chose him <laughs> mm -hmm. well it offered him a chance an opportunity mm -hmm. to transcend this mundane reality mm -hmm. the, the film also signals it puts if you if you were thinking about Terry Gar and the kids at all, the movie is crass enough to have him kiss that other lady before he goes into the alien spaceship, so you know, like, uh, don't forget about them. Right. If there's any romance, it's with her anyway. So right, they're they're you, they're the ones they, that are were soulmates even even before yeah. they run into each other when everybody's out, kind of having a little picnic, and like mm -hmm. the, these people are on the elevated plane. That well, it's important to note about Terry Gar. She had done young Frankenstein at that time. So people knew her from that and she was kind of a light comedian and that sort of thing. But she was also famous at the time for doing coffee commercials. And so Spielberg cast her based on seeing her in a coffee commercial and thinking this is a very charming, funny person who knows how to sell herself while selling coffee. You know, a little bit like Flo from Progressive or one of those types mm -hmm. of people like Terry Gar would have been like just universally known as a coffee pitch lady. And unlike Flo, liked... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And unlike Flo, <laughs> everybody likes Terry Gar because how can you not like Terry Gar? She's a very likable person and, and knows how to bring that energy. But I think it does help make the case for this character as being someone who's stuck in the prosaic kind of grind of middle American corporate life. She's, she's interested in lower things while, while Richard Dreyfus is interested in higher things so but yeah she's the most sympathetic character in the movie because terry gar is the most sympathetic performer in the movie and she's the only yeah richard dreyfus is not a likable actor and he's not made to play anything particularly <laughs> likable in this movie he's at his most likable in jaws yeah just just being the uh that's because he's the He's the nerd. Yeah, he's the twerp. He's the twerpy nerd who's a little bit of a sexual threat. Like uh, Roy Scheider's wife is a little bit into him. Like that. That's that's who. Right. That's who he's supposed to be. That's the text of Jaws, and so that works perfectly. Richard Dreyfuss is perfect as kind of an alpha beta type who's a little bit of a threat, but also a complete twerp. Richard Dreyfuss has made a career of playing those <laughs> kinds of characters, and the the best. Richard Dreyfuss movie is of course what about Bob because Bill Murray is just unleashed to make Richard Dreyfuss's life hell and it's, <laughs> and it's very satisfying for the audience <laughs> and there's nothing sympathetic about Richard Dreyfuss at all in that movie <sighs> yeah so did we all say our overall thoughts on I, this I think, so, yeah. I think so I mean I I will say I want to throw a little love towards the first act of this movie yeah, the whole family drama of the central mm -hmm. part of the movie is a drag and everything where he's running around Wyoming is a little bit of a drag and, you know, the light show is at the end is suitably spectacular. But the thing that I really do love is everything that happens when Dreyfus goes out in his truck yeah. and it's, it's just a wonderful sequence and it really makes you feel the mystery and the awe and even just when, when we cut to Muncie, Indiana, and we see the single mother's porch and the sky is out there yeah. and it's this yep. wonderful kind of Norman Rockwell painting kind of sky. Yeah. Doesn't really look realistic, but it sure does evoke like 
there's something lurking in the heart of America. <laughs> like Stranger Things wishes it could evoke that vibe in one shot as well as Spielberg can just do effortlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, or even just as probably another map painting, the God's eye view of the neighborhood when we first yeah. meet Dreyfus's mm-hmm. character. And then when he goes out in the truck and the way the spacecraft is introduced, just coming up behind him. And then <laughs> that stuff is wonderful. That is its own yep. movie. And that is a four star great one of the best alien <laughs> movies ever made and it's sandwiched in between some boring marital little drama. joke cool jokes thoughtful jokes that <sighs> are in there too the flashlight the the yeah. flashlight's great yeah well and i absolutely That's love good. i don't know whether it's product placement or not but if it is i love it i love mcdonald's i love coke i love all the little toys that come to life everything mm-hmm. that do you First, I thought you were going to talk about the military trucks and stuff like that when they converge on the town. and That too. But yeah, all the toys and things like that. All the little things that connect it to my childhood and that really make it feel like this transcendent thing is invading actual tactile reality as I grew up with it, as we know it. Like, it's not some generic restaurant. It's not a movie restaurant. It's McDonald's. They're invading middle America where we have McDonald's, where we have Coca-Cola, where we smoke these kinds of cigarettes, where our trucks feel like this. All the knickknacks that go flying when uh, his truck is being menaced. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's so of the time and so tactile and so real and so lived in. I mean, it's what Lucas did with Star Wars and Alien also did that year with space stuff where, you know, you think of like a Marvel movie and those worlds never feel lived in lived in. No. You never feel like you could just sit in like, this is how a chair feels in Wakanda and Spielberg and Lucas and, and their generation are so effortless with, with those kinds huh. of details that just put you in the headspace of the character so that when the transcendent thing comes, you feel really anchored in that reality. It's all the little toys in the kid's bedroom that comes alive. It's the screws that come out of the, mm-hmm. when, when he's being the abducted. Vet. Right. Um, it just feels very, very tactile and very real. And it's, it's, it's really, I really love that about this movie. And that's particularly strong in those, in the kid's abduction scene, which is a justly famous Spielberg set piece. Glowy lights coming through a window, glowy orange lights. You know, J.J. Abrams is going to try to make a career out of this crap and never come anywhere close. I mean, this movie, I I never liked Super 8, but this movie makes me hate Super 8 even more because it's just like, nice try, JJ. Like, you you think you can do this kind of thing, but... I liked Super 8. In order to do this kind of thing, you you actually have to do it. You can't just gesture towards it. You have to to actually actually have some talent. Number of hit movies made by Nathan Albertson, zero. Number of hit movies made by JJ Abrams, six or seven. So, (laughs) there's your your counter-argument, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, man. All right, let's talk. Let's talk credits. Let's let's just talk our way through this movie real quick. What do you guys think about that credit sequence? My house was concerned that there that I hadn't turned the sound on. Uh huh. Yeah, I was too. I was I was messing around with my controls and everything like that. But I think that might be one of my favorite credit sequences. I I was just thinking like the amount of different moods that John Williams gives you there, where you start with this trilling note of anxiety. And then yeah. you suddenly build into sort of wondrous transcendence. And then you build into just kind of a crescendo, a bomb, before we were in the desert. 
Mm-hmm. It's pretty awesome. Again, Stranger Things wishes it could do something like that. Marvel wishes. I mean, just Marvel does not wish. Is nobody sure. allowed to aspire to Spielberg and Williams? I, I, I wish they would. I mean, <laughs> yes, please aspire, aspire. Uh, I, Marvel doesn't wish. Marvel does not. Marvel doesn't care. Marvel just doesn't do credit sequences. No, what they have is a really cool credit, uh, uh, a pre-roll sting. Pre-roll sting, which is great. And, and, yeah, and, it's pretty cool. And does some of the same work of... It does a lot of work. Right. <laughs> it does, Boy, does so it. much work. It's it so puts irritating. you right in the mood for Marvel and gets your feels going. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> At the end of the show, you're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why was I nostalgic for any of that? You tricked me again. I hate this again. <laughs> and then you go to the next one. Yay. <laughs> he just did the fox, but that's okay. No, it's. No, no, he was. Oh, you're right. you're and it's like remind it's like all movies that I hate. It's like there's Captain Marvel with her mohawk and there's and yet still <laughs> Wakanda. Um, you're, you're, and I'm like, yay. <laughs> but what what people seem to have forgotten is that Marvel arguably does this as well as anyone with that little sting. But they'll often put a scene before the sting and which is fine. That's a fun way to do things. But what I like about a credit sequence like the one in Close Encounters is that we're transitioning the audience out of their mundane lives into the mood of our movie and we're taking a little time to do that. And so we're going to first it's just like, oh, hey, the movie's starting and then we're going to build some anxiety and then we're going to build some wonder and then we're going to tell you, get ready for the adventure of your life. And then suddenly you're in the desert and it's like you've been transitioned emotionally so effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, I just, love credit. I love the challenge in the opportunity that credit scenes created yeah, and for just, somebody, whoever decided that that wasn't how it had to happen. Well, I think our old friend Peter Jackson is one of the people that helped kill it for the modern era because Lord of the Rings movies were very influential in the way, in the way that they're structured and they just started with a title card and, you know, Lord of the Rings and then we're into Kate Blanchett telling us why we should mm-hmm. care. Which is effective in its own way, but I think it's been a bad influence on things. Okay, so you have the desert scene, you have the air traffic scene. I think we probably said most of everything that Mm -hmm. one might like to say about those scenes. Air traffic scene, another good example of people talking over each other. Really fun. Just that that thick, well-designed layer of sound. Thinking about, well, the the challenge and fun of designing that scene and Mm -hmm. making it work. It's pretty in terms of visually or audio, 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 Lee, you've got camera angles, different conversations, actors Mm -hmm. sing their lines, people talking over each other has to be talking over. It has to be heard enough Mm -hmm. that you, you can select who you're listening, which conversation you're listening to. Right. And there's no preference really given. No, not visually or uh, yeah, from a visual, visual or audio standpoint. Yeah. Well, the thing that's so effective about it is that, there probably is on some level, but you just feel like there's not like they're, they're sort of one way or another directing you. So you get all the information you need. Yeah. But it's just really tricky. And it, it, it feels confusing and frustrating as an audience person. Like, I feel like I should be listening to the black guy sitting in the chair, but the white guy came up behind him and started talking to somebody else. And Mm -hmm. I don't know who these people are, what their roles are, what their names are. I don't know anything. I can't tell you how to just, 
I can't describe to them to you except there's a black guy sitting down and there's the white guy standing behind him and they're talking to random other people mm-hmm. off mm-hmm. to the side yep. and it's hard to yeah no it's great yeah. it's and yeah it's it's frustrating in just the right way because it's the kind of frustrating that makes you lean forward and try to pay attention right which modern movies again it gives you that sense of nobody knows what's going on here mm-hmm. and you're one of you're in the scene as one of the people who doesn't know what's going on mm-hmm. just like in the desert right yeah no that stuff's real great and if you think about that stuff like what does it matter to where the movie's going? Does anything really matter to where this movie's going? Not really, but it sure does create tension and expectation as to where the movie's going. It matters in terms of engaging you in the movie yes. and right. in the story and in the mystery and wonder of it all. Right. It's creating an ethos. Yeah, it's doing something emotionally. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. you get those two scenes and you're already, what, 15 minutes? It feels like you've mm-hmm. spent you've spent a lot of movie that, that's probably an exaggeration, but it, but it does feel like a while. It takes a while to get to Dreyfus because b- even before you get to Dreyfus, you're going to get to Melinda Dillon, a famous for, you guys reminded me of this. Christmas, Christmas story. story. Yes. Has a good line in being put upon. I had to look it moms. up. I kept, I kept thinking, who's fake Goldie Hawn and why do I recognize her? That was my... <laughs> I do not like her in this movie. She, she seems very something, very off-putting, very... Like she thinks I should like her just as a performer. She has an energy that I don't really like very much. I don't know. She's, she's good at playing sideways to herself in Christmas story. Yes. I think she's great at that. All the same energy. You put her with that dad in Christmas story and it works really well. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, in this movie, it's like, she's not likable enough for you to even want your hero to end up with her. Yeah. Maybe it's just that the movie doesn't bother to flesh her out at all like That's who true. is also, she why is she single it does not bother why does she live in this idyllic it, it uh, thomas kincaid painting house with her son mm-hmm. I mean, they're perfectly not implausible you know they're what is going on up there <laughs> <laughs> the sound whatever whatever mundane thing it is is, is really transformed down here it sounds like quite quite a process happening <laughs> Oh, it's our stupid robo vacuum. It started vacuum cleaner. It started I, I by said itself. It. Yep. I thought so. All right. Well, she's gonna stop that when she gets a chance. Uh, all right, folks. Just to we're just gonna be honest. There might be a robot vacuum going above us as this podcast is being recorded, but we're not gonna let us stop us. We're like we're like Richard Dreyfus. We will throw garbage through the windows of finishing this podcast. We will not let the robot and vacuum. And some of that garbage is the robot vacuum, <laughs> yeah, actually. Exactly. But please don't go. Like, everything's going to be fine. Just don't go, listeners. Don't go, listeners. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, so we meet the single mom and her adorable little son, the first of many famous munchkins in Spielberg land. He is pretty sentimental about kids, Whatever, whatever anger he has about suburbia i mean i guess he just sees himself you know i was the poor put upon mm-hmm. little angel whose parents were mean and were fighting all the time but i was just an adorable tyke i guess I, and you know roy neary's kids are never adorable no no roy neary's kids we don't have a lot of sympathy They're anti-adorable for. yeah but to be fair the et kids have a lot of the same energy that the neary family does that's some, true. some pretty famous insults that i won't repeat or are, are, yeah. are thrown back and forth and in, in et and eventually we come to have sympathy for but drew barrymore is very similar to the kid in this movie and that she's just this little moppet this little 
angel with dimples and all that kind of thing. So, <sighs> greatest kid in Spielberg is a short round. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot. The answer is Elliot. Oh yeah, that's yes. where my mind was. Yeah, there's no, there's no real comparison. Elliot is about as good a child acting performance in as you could want in cinema history. I mean, I just don't know. He find me a movie that leans so heavily on a child actor that gets you as much emotion and sympathy and actually tells a compelling story. Yep, I'd agree with that. He's fantastic. I mean. Drew Barrymore is great beside him, and the older brother is fine. And they're all good. I mean, Spielberg is good. very good with kids. I mean, he's just arguably one of the great directors of children and very good at manipulating them without making them hate him later. And there's, there's all kinds of famous stories of him. When the kid says toys in this movie, which is a cute little moment, it's actually because Spielberg is off camera opening a present that has toys inside and the kid is in fact excited about those toys and huh. there's just all kinds of huh. things like that huh. but uh, i'm gonna open my computer yeah and i'm gonna search greatest child acting actor performances You're not gonna and f- i'm gonna get a bunch of shirley temple crap i bet mm-hmm. but there's let's see there's like sure not shirley temple pins labyrinth actor Plays Ophelia. She's she's not as appealing as Elliot. Dakota Fanning is a good was a good child actor. I don't know. Hmm. Lindsay Lohan in The Parent Trap. Haley Joel Osment in Unbreakable. Or he wasn't in Unbreakable. He was in Sixth Sense. Uh, no, Victoire no, Soul no. Okay, in Ponette. You're right. Jean-Pierre Lude in The 400 Blows. That is a great one. Oh, yeah. That is a movie by Francois Truffaut, who plays Labar, Lacombe, or whatever. Coven Jean Wallace in Beasts of the Southern Wild. Never seen it. Natalie Portman. Oh, Beast. Yeah, that's a Leon, terrible movie. Leon the Professional. And Natalie Portman is quite good in The Professional, but I don't know, like what's asked of her in that movie. Bridget yeah, Fossey and Georges Pujoli in Forbidden Games. L. Fanning in Somewhere. Keisha Castle Hughes, Whale Rider. Never did see Whale Rider. Was never interested in seeing Ronan in Atonement. Sure. Anna Paquin in The Piano. Nah. Jacob Tremblay in Room. Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. That is a great performance. Jonathan Chang in Yee. Brooklyn Prince in The Florida Project. Tatum O'Neill, Paper Moon. <laughs> That might be the greatest child actor performance of all time. Wait, wait, who? Tatum O'Neill. Have you ever seen Paper Moon? No. Yeah, we'll have to do it for the podcast one of these days. It's a wonderful movie. Super. Cool. Not as well known as it should be. Banerjee, Pather Panchali. Have you even said Elliot? Did you skip Elliot or no, does the stupid list just not get there? Abigail Breslin, Little Miss Sunshine. Sure, but who cares? Cody Smith McPhee, The Road. Sure, but who cares? Haley Steinfeld, True Grit. That's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Enzo Stiola. Bicycle Thieves. That's pretty great. Catherine DiMangio. Jaji Dan Le Metro. Some French movie, apparently. Mina Mohamed Kani, The Mirror. Tom Holland in The Impossible. Who's 14 in that movie. Kolya Spiridonov, The Italian. Ty Sheridan, Mud. Edmund Mushka. Ty Sheridan's good. Germany Year Zero. 
Noah Wiseman, The Babadook, Henry Thomas, E.T. There we go. Number 27. Hmm. Number 27. On this list. Whose list is that? This is Close-Up Culture. Oh, well. But they have a whole bunch of uh, films I've never heard of, so it's probably smart people. So, yeah, Elliot. Uh, this other list here puts Tatum O'Neill and Paper Moon at number one and Henry Henry Thomas and E.T. at number two. Now, there is a good list because uh, I those are both wonderful performances. Number three goes to Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. Hey, it's a iconic for a reason. He put his hands up on his cheeks and pretended to scream. Number like four, Abigail Breslin, Little Miss Sunshine. Mm. Five, River Phoenix, Stand By Me. Meh, meh. Six, Anna Paquin, The Piano. Meh. Seven, Leo DiCaprio, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Sure, but meh. Eight, Christian Bale, Empire of the Sun. I was wondering where that one was going to be listed. Nine, Noah Schnapp, That's Stranger we'll Things. Someday. Yeah. Did you catch that? What was it? Number nine, Noah Schnapp, Stranger Things. Oh, boo. Ten, Haley Joel Osment, Six Cents. I'm behind that one. He's very 11, Kuvin John Wallace, Beast of the Southern Wild. 12, Jodie Foster, Taxi Driver. Behind that one, Jodie Foster was a great child 13, actress. 13, Albert Tsai, Trophy Wife. 14, Sean Astin, The Goonies. 15, Chloe Grace Moretz, Kick-Ass. 16, Jacob Tremblay, Room. 17, Daphne Keene, Logan. 18, Sours, Sours, say Ronan. Well, the first list was... Saoirse. the. The first list was too navel-gazing with all its French stuff, but this list has left off certain things that should be on there, like the kid from the 400 Blows. So, 19, Kiernan Shipka, Mad Men, Sally, 20. She's pretty great. Millie Bobby Brown, Stranger Things. And two Stranger Things ones on this. uh, Yeah. Yeah. This is way too lamestream. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Have we talked? So we've talked enough about Dreyfus and his encounter with the UFOs. Is there anything else you guys want to say about the the way that the UFOs? I like when the ship rises up behind them. I think that's a neat way to introduce a monster. Yep. I really like that part. Or I'm not a monster, but I just I don't know. I think it's fun when. Movies have well thought out cinematic introductions to major elements instead Pretty of great. just being like, awesome. "Hey, it's monster dogs. They've released them." There they are, like in every Marvel movie ever made. And then, I don't know, we've already litigated as much as we're going to the Terry Gar performance and the wife and mm. most of that stuff. Is there anything you guys want to say about the, the middle of this movie or any the, the, the scene where they go to the globe, they roll the globe, the fake out with the helicopters, anything else to say about Barry's abduction or... Well, I did want to say Spielberg is really good at communities annoyingly having meetings, like the the small town community meeting, because there's one in Jaws that's great, right. and then there's yeah. the one in this one, huh. and there's there's like the doofus guy that wants to tell about his encounter with Bigfoot right. and stuff yes. like that. This movie has it's not just the tactile nature of the thing, the the products that are included, and the way that the physical locations are shot and shown in this movie. But it also has all this observable human behavior that spectacle movies just don't bother. Like you watch, like I like Marvel movies. I'm not trying to beat up on them. They're just an easy example that everybody knows. You watch a Marvel movie and there's like, there's nobody in there that's actually acting like a human being. It's just people acting like movie characters. And I like (laughs) movie characters. I like people that have snappy dialogue and stuff. But this movie is just going to have like, 
the guy telling his Bigfoot story who's boring everybody and being weird or a cutaway shot to mom and pop doing their thing or just it's just going to have well-observed human behavior going on in the backgrounds and at the cracks and crevices of the scenes and you kind of forget how little movies actually just have like there's a little kid acting like a little kid or there's an old man picking his note, like the kinds of things that you see every day when you you could go to the mall. Obviously all three of us like to go to the mall every day. It's where we hang out. Yeah. That's not true, but you know how humans are like eccentric and some of them are pretty and some of them are ugly and they look different and they have moles and they do things and they behave in interesting ways. I don't go to the movies to see real life, Nathan. I go to the movies to escape from them. That's the genius of Marvel. I don't either, Jake. But if you can have a little bit of something that feels like it's observable human behavior, it makes all that spectacle stuff really connect. So, I don't know. I like the community meeting scene. And I like the Bigfoot guy. And I wish we'd just had a spinoff movie about him and his <laughs> adventures with Bigfoot. You don't want to hear that sound twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, you know what? The other thing that I love about this movie as far as tactile, name another movie that has a house that's as crappy as people's houses actually are. Like the Neary house actually feels not like a movie set, not like it's too nice for the family, not not like... A lot of 70s movies are that Yeah, way, 70s. Though. Yeah, Jaws is actually another example of something that gets that kind of thing right. Yeah, and anything, even if you like pick a Shane Black movie. Right. Like a lethal weapon. Like a lethal weapon or anything like that. Or even something that Tom Hanks is going to be in, like uh, Turner and Hooch or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's going to have that sort of uh, grungy, not great, kind of not clean vibe. I agree. There's a a cultural ethos that's not just unique to Spielberg, I think. I, I agree with that, but I would still argue, like you take something like lethal weapon. Okay, it feels pretty grungy compared to today, but it's still like... Murtaugh's house, it's a little bit better than the house that he would actually be able to afford on his policeman's salary and his characters. It's like, it's a little bit bigger because we just need space to put our lights and our cameras and stuff. And it's so much of grunge just feels designed in, even in the best of grungy 70s auteur cinema. But the Neary house to me is just like, I, I did not live in that house, but I I had friends. I could name them. I, I won't name, embarrass them if they listen to this podcast. Not that any of them do or that I'm in contact with any of them. But it's like, I know, I know that family's house. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Who had those mm-hmm. things and, and it just felt like that. And I don't usually have that feeling in a, in a movie. So, I don't know. Maybe Spielberg just happened to choose a house that looked like a particular house that belonged to, I won't say their names. Uh, da, 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 da. All right, so we have all the Neary family drama. We have the famous potatoes thing. We have Devil's Tower. And then we have that long chase section. And for me, that is just boring. Like when they're in Wyoming, I think even the first time I saw this, it's like, all right, we know we know they're going to... I don't know, did you, you... You guys saw this movie for the first time much more recently? Were you actually engaged by running around trying to avoid the military and all that, all the kind of s- subpar action kind no. of stuff no this feels like we needed our movie to be a little longer or something like that and yeah what you wanted was is for the frenchman to just let the people who were called to like to make it work and let the let the people who were called 
And you feel like that's what's being set up because he's obviously, we've overused the word, but he's obviously a benevolent character. He's obviously a sympathetic, mm-hmm. empathetic guy. That's like the whole point is that he sees things that other people don't see. That's all we know about him as a character. Yeah, and he's making the case or whatever. And But it, it was almost as much like they he really wanted that moment where they're like, don't take your masks off until you get clear. And as soon as the they clear, mm-hmm. everybody takes all their masks off. Right. Like, it's like we needed a reason to have that scene. Right. And so we had to get rid of them and also had to have our characters deal with a thing. And yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the way, the way that this would typically be handled in a movie today is you'd really amp up the villainy of the other military. And so you'd have a, you'd have like a machine gun fire that our characters could dodge or or just some completely lame artificial threat that they would have to overcome to earn their medal and make it to the grand finale. There'd be some bad, get you some, some cigar chomping general. I'm thinking of the wonderful Dustin Hoffman movie outbreak, which is 90 schlock, but it's all about like, a disease or something that's about Ebola basically. And Dustin Hoffman's the researcher that's going to take down Ebola. But then at the end of the movie, Donald Sutherland is like an evil general in a helicopter, <laughs> like trying to, for, for whatever dumb movie reason, there's like so many movies have that. And this movie <laughs> at least has the good sense not to provide uh, a fake phony. I, I liked, I, well, I don't mind in terms of the, the logic and structure of the movie. The point is, Many are invited, I guess, but few are chosen, yes, yes, yes. you know? And so uh, the group that actually gets to go with the aliens is being winnowed. Like, who actually has the desire? Well, only three people are like, let's take off the masks and run! <laughs> and only they make it that far. And then only one guy, only two of them are like, we should avoid the helicopters. And the other guy's like, it's just crop dusting. Oh, wrong. <laughs> you're, now you're asleep. <laughs> you're going to miss everything. And then, so only... Hope you're not climbing when you fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. and Die, yeah. So, so only it's like, it, it's putting you through it to make you feel like, hey, this is hard to reach this transcendent goal. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it's dragging on and on. It's like you're climbing. Everyone and everything is against you. Everyone. And that's it. So your wife I, and kids are, it is that sort of pilgrim's progress. You know, your wife and kids are against you. Yes. The, the government's against you, the the townspeople are going to, the people that you think are with you are going to start talking about Bigfoot and embarrass you. You lose your job and yeah. Yeah. And you're going to get there and then you got to climb the literal mountain. Which is all fine, but I I, I almost wish it was, it's, it's, it's nicely underplayed and usually I'm a fan of underplaying things like this, but I think we could have used a, a little bit more on the nose drama here. Like let's 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 meet the guy with the glasses, the third guy, and let's figure out what what actually makes him unworthy. Like mm-hmm. let's let's have some delineation of there's reason why Roy <laughs> nope. Neary's really worthy and Melinda Dillon's kind of worthy and this guy's was worthy to make it this far, but he wasn't worthy to make it all the way and Right, right. But no. Just as a parable, I think you could yeah. effectively stack the deck in a way that would make it land a little bit harder it was just occurring to me that well this is really basic but both the times when he's about to turn back from his insane quest for the aliens and rejoin his family he sees something or he not he gets a new insight or the the news shows the flat what's that place called the devil's Devil's tower Tower. there you go (laughs) it shows devil's tower and so he's willing to make make a sacrifice and leave leave behind what he's done but then nope just 
More reasons for him to leave his family and forget about them. It's a metaphor for how, as Christians, we just have to keep having faith. And sometimes we don't walk by sight, but if we go long <laughs> enough, don't you just imagine there's a bunch of crummy like, stews. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't you just think there must be a million terrible Christian things this pieces is, this, about this movie? This, this movie would be yes. a great start for the Reborn Popcorn Coalition with the new yes, trio we would. talked about, which we're not going to tell our listeners right yeah. now. I think. Well, listeners, if you'd like to hear that, well, Sandy the Movies has a Patreon, and man, if you get it up to, oh, I have no idea what to say. I don't actually have a pitch. Uh, if you but, get it up to five thousand dollars, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I can guarantee if you get it up to five thousand dollars, <laughs> we will do some popcorn coalition <laughs> or whatever you want. <laughs> Seriously, get it up to five thousand dollars and free. Free us. Yes, free oh, us. Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> Let us move on to the next level of existence. <laughs> Let me tell you all of uh, how awesome our lives and your lives would be if you got Sanity at the Movies Patreon to $5,000. Yeah, it'd be great. You'd get a lot of Chip and Lance and The Ville and uh, Sanity at the Movies. and That's probably about all you'd get. Yeah. <laughs> but more awesome, fun, creative stuff mm-hmm. ongoing. That's for sure. Yep. Free us. We've we've seen the money in the mashed potatoes. Now help us make it to the top of the mountain. I don't know how that metaphor works. Well, listen, we're to the big special effects, the thing, the stuff. What do you guys think about the the iconic stuff? Is the it, mothership is awesome. I yeah. like the mothership. It is having yeah the design where you have all the patterns of lights that look like are those letters? Are those alien letters? And you're like maybe it's mm-hmm. pretty awesome. Yeah, there's just a lot of detail and fun that you have the city metropolis looking thing that flips upside down. Yeah. And well, I that's n- cool. I, I, maybe you guys have had this experience. I, I never drive past like a lit up in the night oil rig or refinery type place. Sometimes you just drive past mechanized lit up industry in the middle, like when you're going down a highway, mm-hmm. I never don't think of close encounters when I like Spielberg has set up my imagination in such a way that, and I think it's because they were drawing on that kind of stuff, obviously, but mm-hmm. yeah, I always think of the mothership when I see certain things. And I just read a script treatment for James Cameron's actually, let me, let me read like the opening paragraph of this script treatment. Which, by the way, if you want to hear, hear us read the rest of it, minus some naughty bits that we'll be skipping over, patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. It, it was all I needed. Fade in. A, geomet- a geometrical pattern fills the screen. Silver threads in moonlight. Part of a spider's intricate web. It moves slightly, and we see behind it the giant of an eye. Or the glint of an eye. Sorry, that makes a little more sense. <laughs> the glint of an eye. Pulling back. Two eyes blinking in the darkness behind a mesh of fishnet material. Continue pulling back to reveal a face. A face shrouded in darkness, covered by a concentric web-like pattern. Behind the mesh, we catch a hint of the features. Not much. It's the eyes which command our attention. Pulling back. Head and shoulders. A black knight background. Wider still, revealing a muscular silhouetted figure sitting cross-legged with zen-like composure. The arms are straight down between the legs. Behind the figure is some kind of steel structure. But wait, as we pull back, city lights have come into view, and now skyscrapers, but they're above us, sticking down into the frame like the mothership in Close Encounters. Hey. (laughs) Camera rotates now 180 degrees, putting the city where it belongs, below us, and revealing that the figure is hanging by his hands, by a thread-like wire, cross-legged and chilled out, upside down. He's wearing a form-hugging bodysuit, 
Hard to make out the details in the moonlight. Who is this wacko? Keep pulling back. The figure is hanging like a spider from a radio mast high above Manhattan. There are familiar landmarks. Pan Am, Chrysler Building, Empire State. The Empire State Building is lower than us, so there's only one place we could be. 1,400 feet above the street on the radio mast of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. A quarter of a mile below us, the traffic moves like corpuscles of light through the circulatory system of the city. Hey. Pretty cool. Pretty Pretty amazing. Cold open scene. Well, and interesting that Spider-Verse was the one that finally did that that same thing. Yep. Interesting that the idea originated a long time ago. I guess it's an obvious idea if you're trying to break a Spider-Man thing visually. Yeah. Pretty good. Well, if you want to hear hear where that goes, which I assume you do, then you could pull it up on the internet yourself, I guess, or you could pay us on Patreon where we will read it for you. We haven't done it yet, but we're going to. <sighs> Maybe we, we actually probably will have by the time you hear this. I'm just guessing. All right. So, yeah, big alien reveal. And we're, I guess we're saying it kind of lives up to the hype. It's pretty cool and all that. Yeah. I do not like the aliens. I think they're pretty lame, actually. Like E.T. is such a more sophisticated creature than mm-hmm. you have those little aliens that come out who are just little girl ballerinas in alien suits, if anybody was wondering. And then you have the alien that smiles at Francois Truffaut and he's okay, I guess, but you have the, you have the creepier parent alien who looks like a spider unfolding itself as he yeah, comes down. I'm just gonna be honest. I don't love him either. I want to, I want to give Spielberg full props for being amazing and all that kind of thing, but I don't love those aliens. They are, I mean, more than any other alien that we saw that year Mm -hmm. meant to evoke what actual people describe Mm -hmm. when they see them right yeah they're they're designed after all the all the the latest research of the time i mean all the sightings all the abduction all the whatever stuff like they're meant to evoke that to be Mm -hmm. that to be the this is the true story of the saucer men that people have been seeing for 20, 30 years now. Yep. And maybe I'm doing that dorky thing, that somewhat unfair thing where it's like so many things have keyed off of close encounters that it doesn't seem that special when I see it now. Cause I'm just like, Oh, well they're doing the alien thing. That's what aliens look like. But I imagine it was pretty cool at the time. I don't know. Anything else, anything else you guys want to say about this movie? Not really. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I don't think so either. I was just trying to think if there was anything else. These are the Can we at least agree these are the worst aliens of 1977? The movie Alien has much cooler aliens and the mm, movie yep. Star Wars, little film called Star Wars, has, I would say, much cooler aliens <laughs> <laughs> than yeah. any of these aliens. Yep. Yep. In terms of you just feel like this is a real creature, I feel like I would rank them... Chestburster, Cantina, Aliens, Grown Up Alien from Alien, and then Smiley Guy, and then Ballerina Girls, and then Spider Guy. Spider Guy's the worst, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. His limbs just don't work the way that limbs would work. M- close Encounters, zero stars for this movie. <laughs> All right. Well, should people watch Close Encounters? Nah. It it gives you a window on Spielberg in the 80s, but 
It is a pretty angry and not that enjoyable movie with no nutrition. I mean, it's not I being too mean. It's not going to like suck too much. If, if you go and do it with your eyes open, I'm not sure it's going to suck too much nutrition out of you. Like, it's, no, it's not going to do that. It's a uh, closest thing maybe that Spielberg has to Mark's, Mark Twain's definition of a classic. The kind of thing that nobody wants to read, but everybody wants to have read. Yes. Huh. Yeah, you kind of have to see it if you're interested in movies at all. It's good to have seen it. It's not good to see it, but it's not great to watch. I mean, <laughs> if you think about, if you just go down Spielberg's filmography, okay, nobody cares about Sugarland Express. You got to see Jaws. You got to see the indie movies. You got to see E.T. You don't got to see Close Encounters. I mean, it's the one that feels like an artifact and not like a living, breathing piece of entertainment. <sighs> well, there you go. That's Close Encounters. Don't leave your family to go on a mothership. If anyone listening was thinking about doing that. Don't do it. Somebody should make the sad, depressing movie of the government explaining to Terry Garr and her kids that they're never going to see their <laughs> their father again. That should have been the credits cookie. They should have had a Marvel credits cookie. But your grandchildren might. He'll be the same age. The aliens will bring him back. But what am I supposed to do for money? <laughs> the benevolent aliens didn't solve that. <laughs> All right. Coming up next on the schedule for Sanity at the Movies, we're going to talk about a different sci-fi thriller. One starring that great thespian Nicolas Cage. It's called Knowing. It's a movie you may not have seen. It's got some disturbing content, not for kids, but we thought that it would be an interesting movie to talk about next. Jake's never seen it. Never seen it. No idea what it's about. Ben seen Didn't it recently. Didn't know that it was a movie until you guys started talking about it. Well, now you are doing a little thing called knowing that that movie exists. And not a particularly well-received movie upon its coming out, but a movie that is going to be interesting to talk about and interesting to talk about as related to the things we've been talking about, even some of them on this very podcast. So that's what we're going to do next. And uh, I don't know. Go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies to support this podcast. Um, anything else that you need? Ben, I don't know. How many spaceships out of seven do you give to Close Encounters? That's a hard question to answer. I mean, three maybe. Three spaceships. Jake, how many spaceships out of seven? Uh, 4.5. 4.5. I'm going to give seven spaceships to the first third of the movie. Zero spaceships to the middle third of the movie. And 3.5 spaceships to the last third of that movie. As to what that all equals out to, <laughs> you would have to do math to figure that out. And I am not going to do that right now. So, there you go. It, it, it equals three and a half spaceships. Does it? It does. That's, the, that's how it averages. It oh, yeah. You're right. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you are absolutely right. Okay. Well, until next time. This means you can't fool us by agreeing with us. I don't even know what I don't even remember that 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 line came from. It's from the town hall scene. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Did you just get that off of IMBD quotes page by any chance? Some page, yeah. How about this means something? Einstein was probably one of them.